Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part two of a two-part conversation with Sandra Maitri and host Michael Lerner, titled Enneagram and the Diamond Approach to Inner Self-Realization. Sandra Maitri, welcome back to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So this is the second half of the spiritual biography that we've been doing with you. And for those who have not heard the first half, let me briefly introduce you again. Uh, Sandra Maitri is an artist, an author, an Enneagram teacher, and a longtime teacher of the diamond approach to inner realization. She was among the first group of students to whom the Chilean psychiatrist Claudio Nerano presented the Enneagram system in the United States in the early 1970s. She has been teaching the Enneagram as part of the larger work of spiritual transformation for over four decades. Sandra leads diamond approach groups and Enneagram workshops for hundreds of students each year in the United States and Europe. Her first book became a classic of its kind, bringing to the burgeoning genre of Enneagram literature one of its most spiritually grounded voices. And that was the spiritual dimension of the Enneagram, Nine Faces of the Soul, and was published in 2000. Her second book, The Enneagram of Passions and Virtues, Finding the Way Home, was published in 2005, both by Tarcher Putnam Penguin. So I must confess that our first conversation touched me very deeply. Uh, we covered, I think, quite well uh, your life story up through the time you um, participated in the pioneering sessions with Claudio Naranjo uh, uh, in Berkeley. Uh, and... Um, and then uh, how you met Hamid Ali in those sessions with Claudio Naranjo. And uh, so that part of the conversation, I thought I did uh, reasonably well with you. Uh, as we talked afterward, I thought that the segment where I tried to capture some of your life after that and also when I began to talk with you about your Enneagram work, um, I didn't, I wasn't as clear. And one thing we could do is simply uh, erase that part of the conversation, but there were so many gems in what you said that I would rather leave my confusion uh, apparent to those who were careful uh, students of these things because you said so many beautiful things in response. So what I thought we'd do today is to start back with your life story uh, after those uh, early uh, times with Claudio Naranjo and follow through with where your life took you from there. And after that, turn to your uh, two remarkable books, um, and the broader subject uh, of uh, your work with Hamid Ali and the Diamond Approach. So that's my suggestion for how okay. we do it. 
And just for uh, listeners, uh, I want you to understand, dear listener, that uh, our subject here is really enormous because the work of Hamid Ali, who uh, writes under the name A.H. Almas, is a, a very extraordinary body of uh, spiritual teaching. And he has written dozens of books. And I have with me, in addition to Sandra's books, um, his book, The Pearl Beyond Price, uh, The Integration of Personality into Being and the Object Relations Approach. I have The Inner Journey Home, The Soul's Realization of the Unity of Reality. And I have his book on Enneagram, Facets of Unity, the Enneagram of Holy Ideas. And this is only a small part of, uh, of his extraordinary opus. Uh, so one of the questions I think I will actually start with, Sandra, is um, in your own teaching, how do you integrate the immense corpus of uh, Hamid Ali's teachings um, with students and with your own uh, direct experience of the teachings of Claudio Naranjo. In other words, to me, and I have also here three of Claudio Naranjo's books, Enneotype Structures, Self-Analysis for the Seeker, <clears throat> The Enneagram of Society, Healing the Soul to Heal the World, and Enneagram and Psychotherapy. So for me, this corpus of work, both Naranjo and Almas, which you quite uniquely uh, bring together with firsthand experience of both, and then you've added your own uh, work over many years of teaching. So in your, in your teaching with your students, how do you do it? <laughs> um, let's see. I'll try to take a stab at answering that question. Um, well, first and foremost, what I teach is the diamond approach. And in the diamond approach, we have a, a particular sequence of kind of uh, signposts along the way that people who engage in the practices of the diamond approach typically pass through particular um, issues, particular qualities of true nature that they encounter at various stages in their journey. And it's really... Um, uh, a reflection of Hamid's journey and his insights into that progression. And it's also a reflection of what he observed in working with dozens and dozens of students. So the diamond approach is really a result of experiential firsthand knowledge about what a person typically runs into as they drop in deeply. There's basically two main threads to the diamond approach. 
Uh, and in my opinion, this is something we can talk about a little bit more if you want to, but in my opinion, Hamid really picked up where Claudio left off in developing the diamond approach. And the, the two main um, facets of the teaching have to do with, first of all, learning how to really show up, how to really get present within our experience, within our own consciousness. So instead of being completely outer directed, which most people are, we learn in the diamond approach to shift your attention inward. And that's something that uh, Hamid got from Claudio or, it, you know, it's really, a, it's, a, it's a basic principle in most, most spiritual work that involves any kind of introspection. And then the second thing, which is really the revolutionary facet of what Hamid discovered and then continued to develop is that if, the, if our ego structure, our personality structure is an illusion, as all of the ancient spiritual teachings say, they say it's a, it has no ultimate existence. Hamid's methodology was, okay, let's find out firsthand. And so the practice that he developed is one of learning how to dive into the various facets of our ego structure and to experientially get in touch with them, sense them, feel them, find out what they're all about and what is making them seem so real, right? If it's all an illusion, there's something giving that illusion a sort of virtual reality. And what he discovered is that it's the beliefs and the investment in those particular structures and mindsets and so on that give our personality structure its virtual existence. And so the practice of inquiry, as he calls it, is a method of learning how to really explore all of that phenomena and find out what its nature is. And one of the things that he discovered is that all of the facets of our personality structure, really of our psychology, are mirror images of truths about our ultimate nature. So different structures step in as we lose contact with the ground of being in order to compensate. And um, so really in a nutshell, that's, that's the methodology of the diamond approach. And as I said, um, when, when the group ended with Claudio, I, I think that, and I probably said this the last time we spoke, that uh, certainly what happened for me, and I think for, for many, many of my colleagues in Sot was that we got down to the, the, the core of our personality structures pretty quickly 
using the map of the Enneagram. And the core of, of every ego structure is basically a sense of deficiency because it's a sense of self minus our true nature. So obviously something enormous is missing. And we all take it very personally, like something is wrong with me or something is missing in me, when really something is just missing from our consciousness. Um, so anyway, I by the end of the, the time of my work with Claudio, I was in a pretty deep state of depression. And I was, uh, I, I was very much aware of an ongoing sense of lack that I didn't really have the tools to get through until I discovered the diamond approach, which Hamid, unbeknownst to me, was developing during the time that I knew him. So that's helpful and actually beautiful as an introduction. So let's take up again, uh, because this is where I thought I didn't do as well as I could have, one of the areas. Your life after, um, and then we'll come back to the diamond approach, but let's take up your life after uh, the SAT, Seekers After Truth, uh, mm -hmm. meetings with Claudio Naranjo, the Chilean psychiatrist, ended. Mm -hmm. and, and before we go there, I'm just going to remind listeners that we're talking about Enneagram, which is a, a map of the universe that came to the West with uh, the mystical Armenian teacher Gurdjieff. And, uh, but he didn't teach it as a personality system. And then a, uh, a Bolivian mystic, Oscar Ichazo, uh, teaching in the uh, desert in Arica in Chile, uh, taught it to Claudio Naranjo, who was a Chilean psychiatrist of extraordinary gifts. And Naranjo brought it to Berkeley and taught it uh, in Berkeley uh, as a, uh, as a uh, approach to uh, personality. Ichazo was the one who publicly introduced Enneagram as an understanding of personality. And, uh, and Claudio Naranjo developed that uh, far beyond what Ichazo taught. That is where Sandra Maitri and her colleague and friend, uh, Hamid Ali, who writes as A.H. Almas, learned it. Do I have that right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it is from there that at the end of those gatherings in Berkeley, which were called SAT, Seekers After Truth, that you found yourself in this deep depression without the tools to find your way out until you found your way back to Hamid Ali and the Diamond Approach. So what was the sequence in your life? What were the significant moments or turning points in that journey before you found your way back to the diamond approach? Uh, my fax machine is, um, That's okay. sorry, is going well, off. 
Uh, I'll just wait until it's yeah. okay. done. We'll just take a break until it does. Sweetheart, are you printing? No. Okay. All right. Okay. We're good? Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. So the question was... What were the major... In other words, what were the major periods or uh, mm. episodes or turning points in your life? Uh, you, you mentioned some of them before, but I'd love to go back over them and understand sure. them better. Yeah. Sure. Um, let's see. After the group ended, it, it, it didn't exactly end officially, the, the group with Claudio, which amazingly only lasted four years, although it seemed like forever at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, he sent me to New York to lead his New York SOT group. There was a group of about a dozen people. And um, I had been trained along with Hamid and, and some, some of the other SOT members in a process called the Fisher-Hoffman process. It's now just called the Hoffman process. And it's, it's basically a process of, of deconditioning, working through your conditioning from your parents. And it was something that Claudio helped Bob Hoffman develop. Bob Hoffman had sort of the skeleton for this this um, powerful psychological process. And Claudio helped him develop it and we were the first guinea pigs. And then some of us were part of the first training and learning how to teach it. So anyway, Claudio sent me to New York. Um, I think I was all of 24 at the time. And uh, I took a group of people through the, the uh, process and also led the New York SOT group. And then after that, I spent a year living in the Boston area, uh, teaching the process with a, a colleague who had also been in SOT. And during that time when I was in Boston, I reconnected with a Vipassana meditation teacher who was a, when I first met him, he was a monk from Thailand. And he had been, and, and I met him through Claudio, of course. And um, he had been part of the revival of meditation in Buddhism in Thailand. It, it had, the, the whole practice of meditation had pretty much gone dormant and Buddhism had uh, devolved in my opinion to a mo more of a religion where there were offerings to the Buddha and so forth rather than a more active engagement in what the Buddha actually taught. So anyway, Dhiravamsa, this was the, the man's name was teaching a retreat in Connecticut, and he invited me to come. Uh, I had been very, very impacted by the work that I did with him during the time of Sat. I'd done uh, a retreat with him, and 
um, a weekend with him. And it was, I, I just thought it was amazing, amazing practice. So I went to the retreat in Connecticut and it really rekindled my love of meditation. And Dhiravamsa invited me to come and be trained as a teacher in his work uh, at the new center that he was starting in the countryside in England. And the center wasn't completed yet. And he told me he'd let me know when it was. And of course, I instantly said, sure. And uh, then I moved to Boulder, Colorado, at the invitation of some of the people who were part of the rolfing and patterning community in Boulder, who, had, who I had taken through the process along with my colleague in Boston. And so I was there for about, I guess I was in Boulder for about eight months. And I brought Hamid with me. He was a little bit at loose ends himself at that point. And uh, he came with me. I also invited my old art school roommate, Karen Johnson, to come. She was also at loose ends. And so the three of us lived together in Boulder. And it was really during that time that Hamid started to develop the diamond approach. And uh, he and Karen got to know each other and became very good friends. And Karen was very interested in what he was developing. And um, Anyway, at, at the end of eight months, Dhiravamsa let me know that his center was ready in England. So I moved to England and I lived there for two years and did a lot of meditation, months of meditation. And um, the, the, the sense of deficiency that I had gotten stuck around uh, at the end of the sought work got stronger and stronger. Meditation was not re resolving it for me. And um, after a couple of years, I realized that this was not, this, this wasn't going to do it for me. This path was not going to do it. And I also realized that I was really escaping from being in the world by being in this pretty much monastic environment, although you know it wasn't it wasn't a, a celibate environment at all. I mean, after all, this was the the um, late seventies, so things were actually pretty wild at the center. But anyhow, I came back to the states, and I was really uh, at loose ends. I couldn't do the process anymore. I just, I, I just didn't feel it was right for me. Um, I knew that I didn't know enough to really work with people at that point, even though I had already led groups and taken people through this very deep psychological work. But I knew that my own development wasn't wasn't there to be able to do that in a way that um, 
didn't come at a cost to me. And so I spent a few years actually kind of um, being somewhat lost and uh, doing office work at Stanford University at the uh, Linear Accelerator Center. I was a travel agent for the physicists. It's kind of a bizarre job. Um, but anyway, it, it gave me a, a, a peek into high energy physics and, and um, what subatomic physics was all about. So I learned a great deal. And in the course of that time, I reconnected with Karen and Hamid, and uh, Karen was starting to teach the work that Hamid was developing, and she did a little piece of work with me. And within 10 minutes, uh, I had moved through the deficiency that I'd been stuck in for years. So I, I was totally sold. And I just, I knew instantly this is something I need to learn, and this is something I need to teach to others. And so I started working with Hamid. I became his student. And um, over the next, I guess it was seven, eight years, I became trained as a teacher. And then I started leading diamond approach groups and seeing students. And uh, that's really what I've been doing ever since. Is it possible or not? to describe in any way what happened in those 10 minutes? Um, yes, Karen had me, I, I, the, the, the physical manifestation of the sense of deficiency that I was stuck in was a kind of ongoing knot in my belly. And Karen just basically said, let's explore it. Let's go into it. Let's find out what's there. Uh, and in the process of doing that, and I thought she was out of her mind. You know, I thought, what's the point? This has been here forever. This isn't going to go away like this. Why bother exploring it? And in the process, it started to loosen up and um, let me see how I can explain to you. I, she, she had me get very close to the physical sensations and the physical sensations I saw were correlated to beliefs that I had about myself. And she had me start to question them and to find out if they were really, really real, really the truth. And just over the course of kind of mucking around in that really very painful sense of uh, anxiety and angst, angst is, is probably the best word for it, it started to relax and it started to open up. And there was a sense of an absence, a sense of uh, um, something, something missing, which was pretty challenging to face. 
Um, but I was, I was desperate and Karen was a very good teacher and, um, she basically sort of, um, the word coming to mind is coerced me into staying with that sense of absence. And, uh, as I stayed with it, there was a, an arising of a sense of profound sufficiency and fullness that I had experienced before, but it hadn't, it hadn't held. Um, and anyway, I just thought that whole process was, was utterly magical. And I really got that it was the piece of spiritual technology that Claudio didn't know. Because uh, I think if he had, he, he would have taught it to us. And I, I was just really blown away by what Hamid had discovered and developed. So say more about that specific point. Uh, what was the piece of spiritual technology that Claudio didn't know or he would have taught it that Hamid had discovered and developed? What was that? It was learning how to, to go into and explore whatever's arising inside of yourself. And, and Claudio didn't know that. He did not know it, no. The, huh. the basic premise of the diamond approach is true nature is right here. Mm -hmm. And if it's right here, then whatever you're experiencing is some kind of veil that's blocking your vision. And that if you really penetrate it, that it's going to inevitably open up and you'll increasingly have more contact with the ground of being. And that's really what the diamond approach does. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Sandra Maitri and host Michael Lerner. And so in what way did Claudio not know that? He didn't know how to guide us through what we call in the diamond approach our holes, the, the, the perceived experiences of absence that we interpret as deficiency, as something wrong with us. He didn't know how to engage those really in such a way that they would open up. And as far as I know, the diamond approach is the only practice in spiritual work that does it. Although now a lot of different schools uh, have been influenced by the diamond approach and inquiries increasingly becoming a part of different practices, including Buddhism. It's interesting. We had a co-founder of the Commonweal Cancer Health Program. I don't know if you ever knew her. Her name was Virginia Veach, and she was a physical therapist who actually studied with Ichazo in, uh, at Erica and became a very close friend. She has since died. But in the Cancer Health Program, she used to do that kind of inquiry. Um, and it's interesting because I don't think she studied um, I don't think she studied with Hamid, um, but she used to do it um, particularly with pain. 
So people would be in intense pain and she would have them go into the pain and just, then she would say, she'd ask them to describe it. You know, how big was it? Was it, sometimes it was out to the sky. Sometimes it was up to the ceiling, whatever. Did it have a color? Was, you know, she'd get a very granular description. And then she would say to them, are you willing to get out of the way of the pain and let it expand? And if someone was willing to get out of the way, the pain, which was also often an intense fiery experience, became a heat and then it became a tingling. And the tingling was a cure, you know, it was a deeply alleviative thing. So it's interesting for me that I've been around a fair amount of people who perhaps have been influenced by the diamond approach, uh, who practice that kind of, of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I've used it myself. You know, I went through a long period with a knot in my, uh, in my chest kind of, and um, it was a knot of longing of intense longing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember the moment when I had a dream and with that dream, you know, the knot began to disappear. And so anyway, what you're describing is familiar to me though I hadn't experienced it through the diamond approach. But as you say, the diamond approach is certainly a major influence in this. God knows there are so many strands, right, mm-hmm, sure. of this self-inquiry work. So, um, so that's very helpful. So, when you were with Hamid first in Boulder, when you and Karen Johnson and Hamid were living in the same space, and then when you and you said Hamid was beginning to develop the diamond approach in Boulder. How did you see, understand, and experience what he was beginning to do? What what were the first signs? Because when you described him in the SAT groups, he was a very retiring, introspective, Mm -hmm. quiet person. Yeah. When you were with him in Boulder, was he beginning to change from that persona? No, I wouldn't say so. And and I really only found out in res- in retrospect that he was developing the diamond approach during that time. I he, see. He didn't talk to me about it, but okay. I didn't ask. I got it. You know, That's... he would he would just sit and he'd be writing in his journal. And um he he Karen was interested. She wanted to know what he was writing about, but you know, he was my buddy. I I I didn't I didn't expect that something monumental was happening to him. Um and I'm not sure I could have seen it at the time. Mm-hmm. So when you came back after these two years in uh the UK, uh meditating and the sense of deficiency got stronger 
and you realized this was not the right way. And then you came back and you were at loose ends. And for several years, you felt lost. You worked at Stanford and so forth. Um, and then you reconnected with Karen and in 10 minutes. Where did that happen? Where did you meet Karen again? Um, in, uh, in, uh, in the peninsula in Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had moved back there. It's where my That's parents where lived. So, um, so at that point, when you reconnected with Hamid, did he seem different at that point from the person? Yes, yes, definitely. How, how did he seem different? He was, I think the best way to describe it, Michael, he was infused by a sense of presence. He had a sense of um, fullness, of depth, and he, he clearly had a tremendous amount of wisdom that would just kind of pour out of him, uh, and it made a lot of sense. He was... Um, he, he, he was really transforming. His personality was changing. He had filled out in a big way. What year was that? This was, I think, around 80, 81, 82, 83. And what year did you, were you with him in Boulder? That was in, um, let's see, 75, 76. So 75, 76, he was writing in his journal. You were three young people kind of at loose ends in Boulder. Uh, and then you come back five years later, uh, 81, and you find him very different. Yeah. What was the experience like for you to encounter the difference in him five years later? Well, I started to realized that something had had opened up in him and because he was my friend and he was my colleague and my group mate there was a sense that you know I wasn't it, it took it took a while for it really to land with me that he was transforming in a big way and I think probably the truth is I was very envious of what I saw happening in him. And for a long time, I, I just was kind of discounting it. I would hear from people, oh, Hamid is, is starting a group and he's developing something really, really interesting. And I would ask my friends what it was and they would tell me and I would think, yeah, that sounds pretty good. You know, but I think really my pride got in the way of investigating any further than I did finally. You know, it took me it took me a number of years to get there. And would you say that Karen was also changing from who you had known before? Yeah, Karen was definitely changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long would you say it took you? When did you reach the point where you really, because that 10 minutes uh, with Karen, was that around 81? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. But 
it, it took you a while for it to really land with Hamid on the diamond approach. Yeah. When, when would you say it landed for you? Well, I, I think it was 83 when I joined his group, finally. Mm -hmm. So that was a big deal, right? It was a big deal. It was, it was a very humbling mm -hmm. situation, and he realized it, and he was fabulous. He was great about it. You know, he said, I know this is a big transition for you. This is a big shift in our relationship. And um, he, he was just lovely. And that was really all I needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just want to pause for a moment, not a pause that we want to take out in the editing, but just to acknowledge my gratitude for your your candor and openness about this process. Um, and, and honestly, uh, Sandra, how powerful it is for me to, um, to do this process with you. I just, um, you know, I, I've done quite a few of these spiritual biographies and, and I've been, Oh, the word I would almost use is I'm kind of awed by the depth of the diamond approach, which I've been reading about for years, um, and awed by your work in it. Um, so I'm just grateful for your openness mm. about your life and your experience. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, is there anything after 83, I mean, after all, 83, uh, that's uh, 30, 37 years ago, is that right? Something like that, that's at 90 uh, to 2, that's 30, oh no, it's 27 years ago, right? I think it's... 37. 37. Yeah, right, 37. Um, in your life, before we go back to your work, were there further important developments or evolutions uh, over the 37 years you've been teaching the Diamond Approach? Were there other turning points? Yes, definitely, definitely. There were... There were incremental shifts in my consciousness expanding and opening up. And there were some powerful ones, you know, there were, there were experiences of, of perceiving reality as one, as a whole. Uh, and then, I would have those kinds of openings and then it would take me a long time, months, years, sometime, sometimes for that to really become a permanent perception for those kinds of things to become permanent perceptions. And so the, the, the thing about the diamond approach, it's not a kind of sudden uh, realization type of spiritual work. 
it's more of an incremental transformation of your entire consciousness. What, what really characterizes it is a transmutation rather than a transcendence. So in other words, you're not, you're not um, moving above or around or um, in whatever movement you can make, you know, to get out of your, uh, the grip of your ego structure you're actually penetrating through it. And what happens in the process of that is that your ongoing consciousness bit by bit transforms. So rather than a sudden process, there's a gradual digestion of your whole personality structure. And um, in the diamond approach, it, it really leaves no stone unturned. You, 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 uh, you have to learn how to face and to be with um, all of the most unpleasant facets of yourself and your ego structure and um, to, to really let it all, let it all be here and um, digest it, you know, to, to, to begin to digest it, you have to first acknowledge that it's here. And so um, the, in the course of, the, of the, the teaching of the diamond approach, it kind of, it, um, it approaches our personality structure and its beliefs and its, its uh, cathexes and so on from a multitude of different angles which bit by bit kind of drill holes into the foundation of the ego structure. And so over time, it becomes less and less strong in your consciousness. And what becomes stronger is true nature in any of the different ways that it shows up. So it's really been a gradual process for me. I, I'm just as I've told you, I'm just finishing a memoir about what led me into the diamond approach. So really that whole period up until I started working with Hamid and probably it's, you know, I've started thinking, well, the next memoir would be what happened afterwards. And uh, that's going to require a lot of looking back at all of the different, um, stages of what that development was uh but they're 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 not really in my mind right now mm. so you you talk about and write about being an enneagram two enneotype two mm -hmm. yeah yeah um can you say what um subtypes you are yeah i'm a sexual subtype Okay. Uh, and uh, in your system of it, I think you actually talked to me about this before, but I'm not sure I have it right. Uh, you said that the other types in, in Beatrice Chestnut's approach, which you know I've studied and done work with her, in her approach, she says the subtypes stack. And I think you said that in your approach, they don't stack exactly. Is, am I right about that? 
What I, I'm not familiar with her work. What, okay. What do well, you mean by stack? So if I remember this correctly, and and I could be wrong about it, um, like I I deal with this myself. So I'm a five Enneagram five, and I'm I look to the world like a social five because I'm fascinated by systems and theories, as you say. Naranjo was a five, um, and um, and Hamid's a five. Hamid's a five. And I love I love these complex systems, you know, and, and uh, deeply drawn to them. So I look like a social five um, to the world. But the underlying fire that drives me is very much the one-to-one or sexual uh, five, the one-to-one friendships or relationships or whatever. So I've never been able to quite figure out which is in the top position. Mm-hmm. But in the stack theory, I'd either be a sexual five with a social five, uh, the next one down in the stack. And then below that would be self-preservation. Mm-hmm. I think that Beatrice teaches that the one at the bottom of the stack actually reverses um, which is more complex than I completely understand. But basically, yeah, so that I would be not the self-preservation five. In my experience, I'm all, actually, I experience all three subtypes. Mm-hmm. So my question for you, in, in the way you and the diamond approach teach Enneagram, is if you're the sexual subtype, what happens to the uh, social and self-preservation instincts are they still active, and are they in an order underneath the sexual? Mm, I see. Yeah. Well, the the theory that we learned from Claudio <coughs> is that the um, the keywords for each of the subtypes, like if if you're a sexual type the keyword for the social type and the preservation type switch. So in other words, your behavior takes on, like if you're a sexual type, your behavior as a preservation uh, drive takes on the characteristics of the social two, which is ambition. So ambition becomes a preservation drive. And conversely, socially, there's a, um, well, it, it really follows along the, the same thing. It's um, the, the key word is me first. So it's a, it's a sense of um, uh, a kind of selfishness and self-centeredness that manifests itself socially. So that's the theory that Claudio taught us. And that would be for the five specifically? No, no, that's oh. for two. That's for oh, two. Oh, that's for two. Okay. I was giving you the keywords yeah, for, right. for two. Right. Um, so that's how Claudio taught it, and that's how the diamond approach does it. Well, we don't actually we don't actually get into that. And it's it's not something that I have given a tremendous amount of thought to. Okay. Um, I think it's it's a kind of complicated theory, and um, I, I haven't really sat down with it and 
thought it through in terms of the people I know, whose subtypes I know. I may do that because I'm also working on another book on the Enneagram. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So I might, yeah, I'm working on a book um, about what I've seen as the central issue or issues in different cases that each type really needs to confront in order for the linchpin of their ego type to relax. Okay. Yeah. So, so following this line of thought, yeah. Um, as you began to going back to when you really joined Hamid and really began to work on this as a, a two. So for example, when, when you talked about why it was difficult for it to land initially, you said you thought your pride was a challenge. Mm -hmm. So for a two, if I'm correct, pride is a key issue. Is that? Yeah. Right? Pride is the passion. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, um, so as you began to do this work on yourself, uh, were you working through your enneotype specifically? I wouldn't say so. I, I would say more implicitly. Okay. Rather than explicitly, although certainly as a... Um, a sexual too, the key issue for me, and really it was the reason I got into spiritual work in the first place, I think I may have said this in the previous part of our interview, is that all I wanted was a good relationship, a one-to-one -one intimate mm -hmm. relationship that worked. And it basically eluded me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, probably it, it eluded me as I look back because I was so desperately needy. Mm. And, you know, when, when, when somebody is kind of clinging to you, mm -hmm. it's, it's the, the natural instinct is to move away, mm -hmm. you know. So I think that's really what I, what I generated. So it really took for me learning how to face myself, accept myself, make friends with myself, and stop looking outside for a relationship that I thought would fulfill me and to find fulfillment inside. Um, and, you know, that, that was the whole puzzle that I was sorting out for all of those years in different um, implicit ways. I was learning how, how to, how to love myself, how to, um, how to give myself what I was looking for through relationship really. Mm -hmm. And then it became possible for me to have good relationships with mm -hmm. men. Mm -hmm. Thank you. There's much more that we could explore there. Um, but in terms of the time we have, I really want to turn to your books and your work. Um, and um, 
so these two extraordinary books, I find them so profound. Um, I've read a lot of the literature and um, your, your first book, The Spiritual Dimensions of the Enneagram, uh, which you published in 2000. Your second book, The Enneagram of Passions and Virtues, which you published in 2005, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, in the second book, um, you have, at the very start, you have um, some diagrams, which I've never seen diagrams quite this clear before, where the first diagram is just an image of the Enneagram with no labels. The second one is the Enneotypes, with, um, starting with nine, ego indolence is nine, ego resentment is one, ego flattery is two, ego vanity is three, ego melancholy is four, ego stinginess is five, ego cowardice is six, ego planning is seven, ego revenge is eight. And then the third diagram, you have a figure sitting in meditation and in the head of the figure sitting in meditation, uh, you have the holy ideas, starting with nine, holy love, one is holy perfection, two is holy will, three is holy love, four is holy origin, five is holy omniscience, six is holy faith, seventh is holy plan, eight is holy truth. And then in the heart, you have the virtues, starting with nine is action, one is serenity, two humility, three veracity, four equanimity, five non-attachment, six courage, seven sobriety, eight innocence. And then in the lower, in the legs, you have the undistorted instincts, uh, self-preservation, social and sexual. And then in the next diagram, the Enneagram of Personality, the figure is flipped upside down. And so the distorted instincts are at the top and the, uh, the uh, passions, I'm not gonna read the numbers again, but indolence, anger, pride, deceit, envy, avarice, fear, gluttony, and lust. And then the fixations are in the head resentment, flattery, vanity, melancholy, stinginess, cowardice, planning, and vengeance. So I've never seen a better visual presentation in the many presentations I've seen. Uh, so the, the, the virtues in, in the objective Enneagram, the true being Enneagram, the virtues are in the heart, the holy ideas are in the head. In the, uh, in the distorted Enneagram, the uh, passions are in the heart, the fixations are in the head. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Sandra Maitri and host Michael Lerner. I want to go to a place early in your introduction where you say Almas ended up founding a spiritual school whose teaching and methodology has changed the lives of many hundreds of students throughout the world. And here's the key passage, which we've referred to. Uh, 
Abandoning the old spiritual motto of the ego as enemy or devil needing to be overcome or extinguished, Almas saw that direct contact and exploration of our mental constructs opens them up, revealing the psychodynamics that put these self-representations and belief in place. Further exploration leads to the core of these psychological structures, loss of contact with one of the qualities that is variously called divine, God, being, or true nature. To put it differently, he found uh, that our psychological structures arise as responses and coping strategies to deal with the estrangement from aspects of our divine nature. Um, key to the diamond approach, and this is what you talked about, is learning to be present to our here and now experience, exploring and inquiring into the inner terrain we encounter. Um, somewhere else, you spoke about, uh, see if I can find it or not, um, how Amas was deeply influenced uh, by uh, object relations psychology and all the work that was being done in mainstream psychology. And as you said, rather than seeing the ego as enemy, which in many schools, Sufi, Buddhist, and others is to be overcome, the diamond approach, if I understand it correctly, goes into and through them, through the practice of presence, allowing them over time gradually to loosen as they are examined in greater depth from many perspectives. Yeah. And that is the fundamental revolutionary dimension of the diamond approach. Yes, yes. So, so what I find curious, just going back to Naranjo, Naranjo was a trained psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. um, it's just curious to me that this incredibly brilliant man as a trained psychiatrist did not find that piece of the puzzle. And I'm curious if you understand why that is the case. Because after all, Amos is not a trained psychiatrist. I mean, he, right. he is a polymath of incredible, exquisite abilities who can learn anything. He started in, in physics and he can learn anything and his opus is beyond belief. But why do you think it is that Naranjo as a trained psychiatrist did not see that uh, developments in psychology like object relations opened up this new possibility? I, that's a really good question, Michael. I, the, the only thing that comes up for me as you ask me that is that Claudio was really a pioneer mm -hmm. in, in, in integrating psychology and spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as I know, he was really the first to, to, to begin to meld those two different sciences as it were. And the, the, the ancient spiritual orientation was always that the ego is bad, that it's something to overcome. And I, I think that just kind of resonates for us 
if we basically believe that something is missing inside of us, that we're deficient, we're bad in other words. And so the translation psychologically into spiritual work is I'm bad because I have an ego structure or I'm bad because I believe in my ego structure. And I think that until somebody begins to penetrate through that belief and turn it around, that um, you, you can't take a, a, a broader view, a more compassionate and um, embracing view of the ego structure. So, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with Claudia's own personal limitations. Um, and I think it also had a lot to do with the fact that the whole understanding was just really beginning to, to come together. Um, the, the, the time in which the, the, the early 70s through the 80s, I think, were a time of an opening in spiritual technology throughout the planet, as well as politics and, you know, all sorts of other culturally, all sorts of other arenas. But I think it was a window when there was a, a, a potential for deeper understanding to happen, you know, so I, I don't, I don't see that, that, Claudio failed. I think that Hamid just took what he did a little bit farther. You know, it just occurred to me to place Hamid's work in the concept of the development of individualism in the West. Because if we look back, for example, to the Asian teachings, the Buddhist uh, teachings, you're dealing with a a civilization where individualism was not prized in the first place. Yes. And so overcoming the ego uh, was a less threatening, in a sense, thing. You could say the same, uh, perhaps, uh, for early uh, Christianity, early Judaism, early Islam. Uh, these were periods of time where individualism as we know it, and after the Renaissance, say, was not a developed experience of human being. Yes. So a lot of what the West has done uh, from, uh, you know, from uh, the Enlightenment, I really should have said, on and then through the Renaissance, is the development of individualism. So for Hamid, working in this highly individualized space, with the technology of contemporary psychology, uh, it makes sense that for the Westerner, uh, uh, that going through the ego structures rather than regarding them as the enemy might mm -hmm. be an essential dimension of this. Yes, and I I totally subscribe to the view that you're you're taking. I think that we see a progression in the West of the development of individualization of consciousness that really led to the whole period of the 70s and 80s uh, when there could be the kinds of spiritual openings that happened. And I think that for people in, um, in Eastern cultures, 
the ego is a more collective one. It's a less individual one. It's more, um, you know, your place is more as part of the whole than, than for us here in the West. And I think that really uh, up until recent generations, the ego has not been such a huge obstacle for Easterners. Mm-hmm. You know, because it, it, it hasn't been as developed. It hasn't been as individualized as it is here in the West. Although what I hear is that that's really changing. I'm like sure the next is. generation of, you know, younger Tibetans um, who, who are in their 20s, 30s, they're developing the same kind of Western neuroses which were unheard of in Tibetan culture previously. Yeah. Uh, Hamida Lee's book, uh, The Pearl Beyond Price, Integration of Personality into Being an Object Relations Approach, is 500 pages of dense content and really starts with uh, an, an assessment of uh, the man of spirit and the man of the world and being and ego as the two dimensions and, and really goes through all of this in detail. Um, so coming back to your work now, um, in, um, I'd like to go in the Enneagram of Passions and Virtues, which is your second book, to the soul and our sense of self. Mm-hmm. And um, you start with a, something very basic, very fundamental, which is what you mean by soul. So could you say a little bit about what you mean by the word soul? Yeah, what I mean is our personal consciousness, our own living consciousness, our what we call me or I when we are referring to that, we're not referring specifically to our body, right? We're, we're, we're um, pointing to the consciousness that inhabits the body. Um, and that's our soul. And the soul can be informed by our ego structure. You know, it can take the shape of our enneotype or as we become more, um, more liberated, more free, it takes on more and more the colorations of true nature. And um, the soul, as I understand, you say it's highly malleable and impressionable. We're shaped by what happens to us most dramatically, as psychology has showed in the early years. And following roughly the age of seven to nine, the period during which our capacity to self-reflect is fully developed, uh, uh, our defense mechanisms solidify, and so our central sense of self becomes the ego. And so there's this necessary process, right, right, of losing touch with being and developing ego, and then in later life dealing with the sense of uh, of the whole in our being, whole in ourself, that's where the hard work of deconstructing the ego, which was necessary for us to construct, is done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the central theory. Yes, and that our, our ego structure 
allows us to develop self-reflective consciousness. Okay. And that's crucial for making being conscious in us as individuals. Okay, so that's really important to me. I hadn't really understood that clearly enough. So you're saying that the development of the ego is actually necessary for self-reflective consciousness, which is in itself critical to seeing being. Yes, to seeing and to embodying being. being. So in this construction and then deconstruction. Yes. Actually, deconstruction is the wrong word, or is it, for what we do with ego and the diamond approach? I think it's a matter, in a sense, it's deconstruction. In, in, a, in another sense, it's really a matter of penetrating something that, um, penetrating through a whole conceptual veil in our consciousness. So it, it just thins out and becomes more and more transparent. Mm -hmm. One of the most beautiful passages, which I don't know if it's original with you, but I haven't seen it before, is in your book, first book, The Spiritual Dimensions of the Enneagram, the chapter near the end called The Inner Flow and the Child Within. Mm -hmm. Now, is that widely taught? Because I, I wasn't really familiar with, uh, with the clarity with which you talk about it. Well, the inner flow is something that Claudio taught us. Uh -huh. And um, like, like much of what Claudio taught us, he, he was very cryptic. And um, he would leave it to us to discover what some of the, the nuances of the Enneagram were all about. And the inner flow was one of them. And so could you describe it? Uh, take any, any point that you'd like to start with and just describe what you mean by that. Okay, so um, let's, let's take your enneotype five. Oh, yeah. So if you, um, there, there's a map of the Enneagram, which you're probably looking at because I mm -hmm. have it in, in that book, mm -hmm. that has arrows. Right. And those arrows are considered lines of flow, lines of internal dynamic movement in the Enneagram. And um, the, the arrows point in a specific direction. So like, for instance, from point eight, there's an arrow pointing to five. And then there's an arrow from five pointing to seven. And the theory that Claudio taught us is that the point before, in other words, if you move one step back from your enneotype against the arrow, that's considered your heart point. And the point afterwards, he didn't really name it, um, but the way that I've come to understand it, it's a further proliferation of the personality structure. So in other words, uh, one way of looking at the lines of flow is that each one is a logical step in trying to resolve the conundrum of being a human being who develops an ego structure. 
each step from one eniotype to the next is an attempt to resolve the existential dilemma of what it is to be a human being with a personality structure, right? So at point eight, for example, the, um, the, the drive is to be king or queen of the mountain, to be indomitable, to be um, a, a strong man or strong woman, as we're seeing so graphically demonstrated these days by one of a very prominent eight in this country. And um, then the movement from that is to five where there's a sense of withdrawal. So point eight, you know, you try, you try to really dominate and to be the most powerful person in the whole world and so forth. And it doesn't resolve your issues. It doesn't resolve your inner sense of lack. And so the natural movement from that is five. It's to withdraw, withdraw from the world, move away, be an isolate. And then from five, the movement to seven is to, okay, that being an isolate didn't work. I, trying to be self-sufficient, believing I'm, I'm autonomous completely didn't resolve my difficulties. So I'm going to go out and um, seek stimulation of all sorts and turn toward the world again. And you can see the movement in the Enneagram away from the world as you move deeper to the bottom of the Enneagram. And then as you move higher up in the Enneagram, there's a more outer directedness. Okay. Right. And so, so the point, it goes, so each, each one, so the flow, the flow that you're following is yeah. the flow in the direction of the arrows. Exactly. Correct? Exactly. And so each one is, is an effort to find the next solution because the last solution failed. Right. 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 And so because of that, Hamid named the point following our enneotype or moving with the line of flow. So for a five, it's the movement to seven. The seven point, which many Enneagram teachers call the stress point, and I, I don't ascribe to that theory, I don't call it that, is a more defensive point. It's, it's adding another layer of personality structure on top of your enneotype. The movement against the arrow, so for a five, it's the movement to eight, is toward the heart point. And what Hamid discovered in his work with people is that the qualities of the heart point are qualities and characteristics that whatever your enneotype is, like if you're a five, the qualities of being an eight were not supported in your family of origin, or at least you experienced them that way. You know, being loud, being brash, being pushy, being dominating, and so forth, for fives was not, not okay for one reason or another. And so the heart point has qualities and characteristics that um, are part of very, very, the, the youngest structure inside of us. 
and Hamid named it the soul child. So it's the child of our soul. And um, in that theory, the qualities of the heart point, and this is part of the reason that we understood it's called the heart point, they're closer to the bone. So the qualities of the heart point are qualities and characteristics that feel more like us than our enneotype. And they're also qualities and characteristics that are closer to true nature. So it's kind of like, you know, if you imagine those Russian babushka dolls, you've got the, the smallest little babushka doll in the center is your soul child. And on top of that, the next layer is uh, your ego type, your enneotype. And on top of that is the defensive point. So that's the theory that we use in the diamond approach. So this is very helpful to me. Would that, so for me, for myself, since this is often a useful way of learning, mm -hmm. um, I find that uh, it, it resonates for me when you say the eight, is the inner <laughs> babushka doll. But it resonates in this way that although I'm a five and very much uh, an introvert, self-isolating, like to be at home, don't like to be out with other people a lot, have the ability to do that for periods of time, to do presentations. And when I have a purpose, I can go out and do it in front of many people and have no problem at all be very actively involved, but when I'm, uh, when I'm able to, I want to be quiet. I want to be inward. Mm -hmm. But I also feel that the eight is where I picked up whatever you call the leadership abilities or whatever it is that seem to have been given to me to do stuff in the world. And so um, the eight actually feels very comfortable to me in my work. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the seven, if somebody wants me to go to a social gathering or a cocktail party or whatever, and I don't have a purpose for being there, I just try to find a corner and read a book or sit with one person. So the seven for me is, is, um, is challenging. Mm -hmm. Whereas the eight feels, I mean, it's seriously challenging. Whereas the mm -hmm. eight feels, as long as it's in service, then I'm comfortable there. Yeah, yeah. Another nuance of it, though, that, that you might consider is that perhaps the movement to seven is a movement toward um, mental stimulation and interesting ideas. Oh. Right? Oh, okay. And, if I look at it that way, I'm just yeah, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, then I'm all over it. Yeah. Most if fives I, get all over that. <laughs> okay. I mean, look, look at Hamid's books. Look at the system yeah. he developed. Right. Well, that's very helpful to me because I always thought of it as being social without a purpose. But mm -hmm. if it's being social in the search of mental stimulation, then yes. I'm all over it. Okay. Well, that's. That's, and, it, and it's and it's also teaching 
The seven yeah. point is about, you know, I know and let me tell you what I know. Oh, how beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful to me. So let me go back to the question of how you teach this. Um, uh, for one thing, has your teaching had to move online in the world we're living in? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so what's that like for you? Because we're exploring teaching online and, and uh, you know, there are good things about it and hard things about it. What's it like mm -hmm. for you? Well, I've been... I've been um, doing webinars and all kinds of stuff online for really ever since my first book came out. Oh, really? You know, I did a lot of in-person workshops, but I also was invited to do, as, as the internet started gearing up, mm -hmm. I was invited to do a lot of webinars online and online teaching. So I'm really comfortable with You're it. Comfortable. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Sandra Maitri and host Michael Lerner. So what have you learned really works for your practice? Like uh, how many people do you take? How long are your, uh, how long are your courses? Uh, how, what, what have you found for deep teaching really works for you? Well, uh, I've led groups. I, I currently have a group in England that has 150 people. I have another group here in the Bay Area that has uh, 45, 50 people. So, you know, I, I, the, the kind of teaching that I do isn't limited to a small number of people or even a big number of people. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can work with lots and lots of people and also very few. I do, I do private work as well, um, with about 20 students who've been with me for a very long time. And the work that I teach is a progression. So for instance, my UK group, which right now is the oldest group I've led. Um, I started that in, in 2002, right? So it's been 18 years. And it's really ongoing work. It's, um, there, there doesn't seem to be an end to it. And because really there's no end to transformation. There's no end to personalization. And that's a term that you'll you'll find in the Pearl Beyond Price. The what I mean by personalization is that the 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 whole spectrum of qualities of true nature living in us as a person. That development is a uh, an ongoing transformation, like until you're completely enlightened and there's no personality structure at all, you know, the, the transformation continues, development continues. So have those 150 people been with you from the start in the UK or do they? Yeah. Well, I actually merged two groups. Okay. Um, so, so about half of them been with me from the start. Yeah. And how often do you hold the group? 
I go now once a year and I do an online teaching uh, one time a year. I used to go twice. Actually, I used to go three times a year. And as I got older, it just got harder and harder to make that, that schlep. And so, now once a year is fine. <laughs> so once a year in person and once a year online. Mm -hmm. Do you have ongoing uh, webinars that you do on a regular basis with some of your groups? Well, like that, that's, well, that's, yeah, an but I mean, that's, that's very, that's once a year. I was right. curious whether you had any that, you're teaching once a week or, you know, something. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Okay. Typically I, I, I lead um, week long or eight day retreats, usually twice a year. And how do you do those online? Uh, like a, a week long retreat, how much of the day are you online with people? Well, um, I'm, I, I just finished one. I'm, I'm leading a, a new group, a new diamond approach group with a, uh, a colleague of mine who's also a longtime diamond approach teacher. And we limited our, uh, online presence to six hours so that the students aren't online for more than six hours. For, for us, as, as the, the, the teachers, I spend probably, I'd say, half that time online. So maybe three hours altogether online a day. Three, three hours a day. Yeah, and then they do exercises with other students for another few hours. So here's a, it's a technology question because we're moving into this period. I don't think it's just because I'm an introvert. I find it exhausting to be on Zoom for more than a couple of hours a day. Mm -hmm. um, do, are you just sufficiently attuned to the technology that you don't find it particularly tiring to do that? Um, th there is a, a, a tiredness factor, and I think it has to do with the uh, EMFs. Uh -huh. um, but aside from that, I, it, it's, it's not, not an issue for me. Okay. okay, that's really helpful. So in the last part of this, um, we've just touched on a whole set of different dimensions of your books and your teaching. Um, what have we not touched on that for you uh, is core to your work that would be really useful to include? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I'm very touched by this, and um, I just, you know, it, it's so interesting for me. I looked at Enneagram for years, and it didn't open up to me. It made no sense to me at all. I must have looked at it for 20 years, and then one day it just opened up. You know, it just somehow I was ready and it opened up and it became a passion. Um, and likewise, 
in a way. I looked at Hamid Ali's work, um, but I was already interested in Enneagram, which has brought me into it. And that began really from very early on to really speak to me, particularly facets of unity, mm -hmm. Enneagram book, and then the inner journey home and then the pro beyond prize. And then his most recent book, love unveiled, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and, um, and it may be because I'm such an introvert, but I trust the writing more than I want to join a group. <laughs> Maybe that's Enneagram 5-like. You know? <laughs> I just want to be alone with the ideas and mm -hmm. let them absorb. Mm -hmm. um, so um, let's start there. Uh, what am I missing by being <laughs> <laughs> by well, being with the ideas? <laughs> yeah, you're 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 missing the uh, personal engagement um, and the challenges that come from sitting with other people and having them ask you probing questions and. Um, you know, rubbing up against um, discomfort with others, perhaps, and mm -hmm. also all of the benefits of being with others. Mm -hmm. For myself, I really feel that my unfoldment and my development is the product of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of inquiries I've done with the people who've been part of my journey all these years in the diamond mm. approach and that I've learned from them. They've learned from me. And it's not just a learning that's mental, but it's like having um, experiential aspects of myself brought up that I might never have explored or looked at. You know, part of part of our practice in the diamond approach is learning how to skillfully give each other feedback and point out the things that we're not seeing. Because a lot of what characterizes our our personality structure is blind spots. And so we don't see them ourselves, and it really takes the friction of engagement with others for that to happen. Mm. So, you know, I would say that's, that's, that's something missing. you're missing out. <laughs> Some say that the five is the point on the Enneagram that experiences their deficiency least acutely, hmm. uh, that they are the point that is most likely to be, to feel okay with their, um, they've, let me speak for myself. It says, if I had worked out a way to guarantee the minimum amount that I need uh, to feel good, and that, um, and therefore that I am less impelled 
than many other people to find my way out of my fiveness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense. I, I've never heard that before, that fives are less yeah. uh, in touch with, with their sense of deficiency. Yeah. But it, it does make sense because the, the um, psychology of a five is basically to learn how to push stuff away that's mm-hmm. uncomfortable and to compartmentalize things. I remember when I was about, it's a very vivid memory, when I was about five years old, there was, I have a y- younger brother, two years younger, and um, my mother was there, and we had blocks or something that she was encouraging me to share with him, and I didn't want to share them. And I said, I just remember, I was saying, well, if I can't have them all, I don't want any of them. That's and the eight. Yes, right, right. And just with a rage, I, and, and forever after, in a way, um, I have just studied how not to need very much. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, fives are often described as prematurely detached. <laughs> and I think I've turned that premature detachment into a kind of an art form. <laughs> Uh, but at the same time as a sexual five my experience has been that that human love is what has put me most reliably in touch with the divine at completely transformative levels and Mm -hmm. that in in the friend as the sufis say the friend with a small f leads to the friend with a big f Mm-hmm. That in the friend, I can not only see the human being, but I can see the divine, mm-hmm. you know, within and beyond the friend. And that that source of nourishment over time uh, really, I think, has more than because I, I meditate, but I'm not a great meditator and I have other practices. But um, what has been alive and real for me is the experience of the divine through friendship. Mm. And it seems to me that that is the place where my own inner transformation has been driven most powerfully. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In terms of your question about whether you're a social or a sexual type, Michael, the... discrimination that I would make Mm -hmm. the sexual types are driven by a drive for union with others Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. a sense of oneness a sense Mm -hmm. of merging Mm -hmm. Um, and social types really enjoy the typically really enjoy the company of other people Right, but there isn't the same. It, it's more a sense of belonging, a sense of companionship, um, a sense of understanding, and so forth, rather than this drive for oneness that characterizes the sexual types. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's helpful to you or it's not. It's very helpful, and it really does suggest that I'm a underlying that I'm a sexual type mm-hmm. uh, because um, I am 
when I moved to seven, uh, I am immensely stimulated, say by this conversation, for example, or, you know, when many in doing the cancer help program, you know, 250 week long retreats at Commonweal over the last 30 years. I love it. I love the teaching. I love the community. I love the community of our friends at Commonweal and our colleagues. I love all of that. So that's very real to me. And I think that is my social dimension. Mm-hmm. But I think that drive for oneness and, but above all, because when I was younger, I thought the oneness was with the particular person I was drawn to. But what has been liberating for me is to realize that, that I'm being drawn to my true self, that, yeah. that this other being who is a wonderful person, nonetheless, I, through that person, I am able to see the oneness, which in fact belongs to me. Yes. In some deep way. And Mm -hmm. it's, but isn't it curious that that yearning, I wonder if this is related to what you said about the development of the ego being necessary for the self-reflective capacity that enables us to look back and see our own being. Mm -hmm. So that's the mental dimension of it, right? Well, I don't think it's just mental. I think it's self-awareness, which isn't mental, particularly. Right. Okay. It's just our capacity, like to know, oh, this is what I'm experiencing. Right. That's self-reflective consciousness, and it's not necessarily a thought. Okay. So, is does it equally come from the heart as well as the mind? In definitely, other words, definitely, definitely, it has to be experiential. Oh, okay. So the the holy ideas that are held in the mind, those are not in themselves experiential. The experiential is in the heart? No, they are experiential. The holy ideas are experiential, um, but they're, they're what the ancient Greeks would have called higher mind. Okay. Right? So higher mind, the way that I understand it, is really inseparable from the immediacy of experience. But it is cognitive at the same time. So it's not in the same dimension as our usual thinking. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a more experiential dimension of thinking that you really feel. So it includes both the, the heart and the the sensory experience you know like at point 1 when you when you see the perfection of everything it's not just an idea even though they're called the holy ideas it's not just a mental idea it's like wow everything is perfect and and that's a that's a total experience of your whole being your whole consciousness yeah, I've I have had the experience of of uh, a friend who was a one who um, started out with a strong self-critical voice, and through a lot of inner work came to see the perfection of everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's so powerful. Um, 
it's so powerful when one witnesses that kind of of transformation. Yes. And uh, another. But just to get this clear, so in your diagram, the holy ideas are placed in the head. Mm-hmm. Virtues are placed in the heart. Mm-hmm. But are you saying that ex- the experiential is the merging of the heart and the mind of the holy ideas and the virtues? Not exactly. Not exactly. The the um, the holy ideas are perceptions. They're views of reality, uh, but they're experiential views. The the um, the virtues are qualities and characteristics that our consciousness takes on as those views are fully digested. So in other words, um, let's see, um, like for instance, uh, at, at point one, since we started there with that particular holy idea, the virtue is serenity. And serenity means that you're not ruffled by things. Like when you get that everything is perfect, you're not busy trying to make everything better. You're serene. You're allowing of everything, of all the clouds that move through. You're not trying to make one a better cloud, as it were. So it's a, it's a, it's a different, um, it's more, the, the virtues are more um, behavioral and emotional shifts that happen as a result, really, of digesting the holy ideas. So the holy ideas are perceptions. And yes. as we digest the perceptions, yeah. they become behaviors and um, ways of being in the world. Um, right. So in other words, when you have um, a, a peak experience or a sense of illumination, as you look at yourself or you look at others or you look at the world around you and you really get everything is just fine. Right. Nothing needs fixing, including me. Like when you get, I don't need to be different. Mm-hmm. Right. The effect of that on your behavior and on your emotional field is going to result in a sense of ease, a sense of serenity, mm-hmm. instead of a sense of agitation and mm-hmm. the the pushing against reality, which characterizes uh, any type ones. Right near the end of our last conversation, uh, we had a remarkable exchange that I think might be a good ending place. Um, we were talking about what's happening in the world. And um, I, I asked you if um, you thought that we were going to bend the arc of being sufficiently toward collective enlightenment uh, to um, to build a better world. And my memory is that you were 
you didn't think we had time to do that? Well, I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, certainly astrologically, uh, if you, if you look at the, the, tremendous moment that we're in right now which is really a culmination of the 60s and that particular moment there's the possibility in the next couple of years uh, of of some really major transformations on the planet um, but I I don't know I mean I honestly don't know I think that the that we're at such a tipping point in terms of climate change that I, I, I don't know that, um, I mean, I think the damage that we've done is not reversible at this point. Um, it's just a question of do we keep going in the same direction and make the planet totally uninhabitable? Um, and, you know, I, 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 don't see, I don't see change happening really fast. I mean, right now there are all kinds of cries from people on the streets for change, um, but uh, change takes time. Yeah, and it takes it takes a, a very definite will, and so I don't know what it's going to take for everybody to get behind the changes that need to happen, or at least a critical mass of people to get behind it. My memory of that conversation when I asked you about what you suggested, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is I think you said something like you suggested people go down to the bottom of the ocean and find something real and hold on to it or something like that. Does that, <laughs> does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that what's important is that people attempt to realize the highest ideals that they hold and to learn how to live them. And really what that means is, is being rooted in the ground of being, you know, and, and that's a long journey. That's why I'm, I'm um, unfortunately not as optimistic as I could be. Because I know how long it's taken me to get mm -hmm. to where I am. Yeah. I have a wonderful quote from Václav Havel that I love. He says, the difference between hope and optimism, that optimism is the belief everything is going to go right, and that hope, by contrast, is a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. Mm -hmm. And my point of view it, which is not unlike yours, is that it's hard to be optimistic, but it's essential to be hopeful. Yes. And that uh, for me, courage and hope is simply the most interesting way to live. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more interesting than cynicism and despair. Absolutely. And that um, this combination of doing the inner work that we're each called to do, and at the same time, finding whatever way we can to be of service is, uh, is perhaps, for me, the most interesting way to live. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 Well, Sandra Maitri, author of The Spiritual Dimensions of the Enneagram, 
and the Enneagram of Passions and Virtues. Um, I can't thank you enough for having undertaken this passage with me for the last four hours or so of two conversations. And I, um, I'm very grateful to you uh, for your work and for all the people you've touched and for deeply um, enlightening me about um, both Claudio Naranjo and Hamid Ali and all that you have added to um, their teaching. I think what I particularly love about these conversations is that when historians get around to really trying to understand uh, what happened when Claudio Naranjo came to the United States and then when uh, Hamid Ali took those teachings and moved forward, uh, you were present at the creation in a way that very few people alive are. Mm -hmm. and, um, and you have offered such a beautiful teaching and expansion of their work. So I'm just very touched and honored to have done this together. Mm. Thank you so much. It's yeah. been a pleasure, Michael. All right. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Sandra Maitri and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>